Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BV Nudge Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler with the BV Energy Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hello, Scott. Hey, Eric. Good afternoon. And it's really nice to be here with you. I'm very excited to be joining you for this episode. And um, I'm very happy to be introducing our guest, Piyush Tantia. Piyush is the Chief Innovation Officer and a board member at Ideas42, where he previously served as its Executive Director for many years. As many of our listeners uh, no doubt already know, Ideas42 is a nonprofit organization that uses insights from behavioral science to improve lives, to build better systems and policies, and to drive social change. And quite simply, Ideas42 is one of the leading practitioner organizations in our field, and uh, it's done a great deal to contribute to the growth and development of behavioral science over this past decade. So Piyush, welcome. It's really nice to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the very kind introduction. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks, Piyush. Um, we are excited to speak with you. And uh, what we would like to start with is to have a background, to better know your background and your early uh, career. I think uh, you have a background in financial services and a master in public administration from Harvard University. Can you tell us about how you came to be interested in behavioral science? So I've been interested in psychology for as long as I can remember. Even as a teenager, I was reading psychology books for fun. Uh, and then for work, I wound up uh, becoming a management consultant. And in that work, I didn't directly focus on psychology, but I did a lot of product design work and marketing type consulting work in retail banking. So I got to think about consumer behavior a lot. And then I was thinking about the next steps in my career, um, you know, at the same time, I discovered some of the popular books that had come out, No Nudge and Predictably Irrational, Stumbling on Happiness. Uh, I just devoured these. I, I loved everything I read there. Uh, so I then had found what I wanted to do. And the PhD had always been in the back of my mind for many years. So I thought, okay, let me go talk to some of these academics, like see, see if I can get involved somehow. <clears throat> uh, one thing led to another. I met Sandal Malainathan. Uh, just he responded to my cold email. We met in New York, uh, hit it off, talked for three hours. I then met Eldar Shafir uh, that same day. Uh, and I wound up joining them at Ideas42 to start just trying out some projects. And uh, yeah, and then just grew from there. You mentioned some uh, of them, uh, Sendin. Uh, um, could you share about any other mentors that had a strong influence on you? Or do you have any researcher or other people who have played an influential role in your professional career? I mean, uh, so many. So besides Sandal and Eldar, there's also Antoinette Schwar, who's at uh, MIT. So three of them were really very involved day to day with building Ideas42 with me in the early days. So I learned mostly everything I know from them uh, in the early years. And then uh, so many others have been influential over the years who have been good friends and colleagues. Uh, helping us, uh, you know, Todd Rogers, Katie Milkman, Angela Duckworth, uh, probably forgetting uh, many others, Anud Shah at Chicago, Richard Taylor. So I've had the privilege of uh, being exposed to these amazing people and working with them very closely over the years. 
Uh, I think we'd like to hear a little bit more about the story of Ideas 42. Uh, I know you mentioned, uh, you started to allude to uh, the founding, but maybe you could tell us a little more about the thinking behind it and, and why you saw the need or the opportunity and, and you know, and, and where it went from there. Uh, so Ideas 42 was uh, started just as kind of an informal project at, at Harvard back in 2008. Uh, The goal was always to find ways to apply the science rather than necessarily generate new science. But once I joined with my strategy consulting background, we we did what a consultant would do. We had a strategy retreat and thought about, okay, what, what does everybody want from this? There were lots of people involved who were, you know, loosely connected. And we really, um, everyone honed in on this goal that we wanted to have social impact first. And then if we got additional knowledge creation, academic insights, that was icing on the cake. Um, so we focused on that. We, we started doing projects not to answer research questions, but to solve social problems. So that was a subtle but very important pivot Um, And this is early. I mean, this is before anybody else had started doing this, right? This is 2009, 10 uh, in those years. Uh, And we quickly realized that being inside a university made that quite difficult because with every contract, every grant, the university would ask, who's the principal investigator? Are we going to publish from this? We had to do you know, all sorts of bureaucratic approvals and all all in the mold of research. So, yeah, it was difficult to do some of the projects we were doing. And at that time, the financial crisis was in full swing, the mortgage crisis. And we were trying to do all these projects with private sector entities, banks, et cetera, you know, to help with loss mitigation. And the university just wasn't happy with (laughs) this type of work. Uh, And at the same time, a couple of our major funders said, well, you should really be separate from the university. Uh, So all of those things came together and we made the tough decision to leave Harvard and set up a nonprofit. So we did that uh, in early, early 2010, we incorporated. And then it took us about almost two years actually to transition out fully. As the grants ran down, we got new grants into Ideas 42. We uh, we built, uh, started building up the nonprofit uh, separately. And it's now you know, a little over uh, 100 people working in 30 to 40 countries at any given time on a range of issues. Yeah, which is really, really incredible what you've been able to, to accomplish and build there. I, I was curious, as you look back, um, if there are several projects in particular that really stand out to you, um, maybe some of the earlier ones or things that you, you felt were really notable. Yeah, there's one I want to talk about because it's one that we've uh, started to scale. And that's quite rare in the behavioral space because we're still new at this. So we've done a lot of projects. A lot of people have done a lot of projects once, but very few have tried to take that insight into different settings. So this is work we've been doing on uh, cash transfers. Uh, These are very, very Uh, common in developing countries as a social safety net. So in in essentially, you know, low-income families receive a a certain amount of money every month or every quarter from the government. Uh, It's unconditional. They can use it for, you know, whatever their needs are. So we wanted to add some behavioral elements to that to help people use that money for things that they wanted to use it for that might be a little longer term, therefore behaviorally difficult to do, right? So what happens in these cases more often than not is uh, they set up a kind of a kiosk in a market because everyone's going there anyway, and that's where you get the cash. So the context is very tempting. There's all sorts of tempting things being sold all all around you. It's very easy for you to go and buy those fried foods and the new toys. Yeah. So we wanted to see, well, could we you know, help people set aside money for things like better nutritious food for their families or school fees or investing in an asset? So the intervention we designed um, 
you know, uses insights from a lot of people's work. Uh, so there's a goal setting element. So people decide what they want to save for. There's a planning element. So they decide, okay, how much money are they going to set aside? And, you know, they track progress towards that goal. Uh, and then we give them a little burlap pouch. So there's uh, partitioning. So on the spot, when they get the cash, they can put some of it into the burlap sack. And this is because most of these people are not in formal or digital financial services as yet. Once they get there, then that partitioning can happen digitally, but right now it happens physically. And this uh, has worked really well. We you know, started doing this in Madagascar. We've seen their you know, 16% increase in better meals being prepared for the family in uh Tanzania and Kenya, we see six to seven percent increases in savings. Uh, we see higher uh, debt repayment in Kenya from all of this. But some very interesting insights uh, about a, doing this in the field and the types of modifications we needed. Now, so this great story from Madagascar where everything had to be pictorial because the literacy rate is very, very low. Right, so we had we had an artist draw these images of people uh, who are imagining goals. Right, so there's a little thought bubble and says, "Okay, I'm imagining buying a cow or bicycle or whatever." The first time we we uh, user tested this, people said, "Oh, these must be rich people." We said, "Why do you say that?" Uh, and he said, "Well, they have all their teeth." Because they all had big smiles, you know, these images. So then we had to modify that image and black out a few teeth so the users could identify with these folks. Uh, and this uh, this little story really highlights how important these little details of delivery are. So nothing changed about that fundamental insight of goal setting or partitioning. But precisely how we delivered every detail mattered a lot. And we couldn't have known that up front from any research insights. We had to go into the field and tinker with it and user test. So I now think about our work in sort of two buckets. There's a design concept that comes from behavioral insight, but then there's building that thing. And building that thing in a way that it works in the context and is scalable. And similarly, we had to, when we went to Tanzania and Kenya, we had to change the types of goals. We had to, there were some gender-related interpretations that were different in Kenya versus Tanzania, even though they're so close to each other. So we had to, you know, in, uh, I believe it was in uh, Kenya or Tanzania, I forget which country, we had to have gender-specific sort of pouches to really highlight that finances and savings are not something that just men do. This is for anyone. Um, so that tells us that scaling is not easy. Not easy. It's not just about replicating one thing in the same way. With high fidelity, you have to do a lot of these adaptations. Yeah, and, and I was, in fact, planning to ask you a little bit about some of the most difficult challenges that you've, you've faced you know, across time and across projects. And, and, and is it this idea of, of local customization um, and, and some of the kinds of communications challenges you just mentioned in the global South? Or, or are there other big challenges that, that you look back on over the last 10 years or so that come to mind? I mean, this is, uh, this is definitely one that's emerged in the last few years because we've started to try to really scale things, right? We feel like we've done a lot of experimentation. Now we want to scale up those insights. Uh, so this challenge has come up more recently. But uh, another challenge that stayed pretty consistent throughout is always, you know, convincing a large, complex organization to try something new. Because even the simplest project we do is innovation, it's uh, not best practice transfer like I used to do in my management consulting days. So I always have to set people's expectations like, no, I have not done this at five other entities just like you. I can't guarantee this will work. This is a totally new idea that we're trying with you for the first time. So it's very, uh, that remains really challenging. So I'm also curious about, you know, your experience in, in that you both work with these very large organizations and even though they're private sector they probably become just as bureaucratic as a large ngo or a government 
Yeah, I mean, I for one was not was kind of nodding to myself as I, I listened to the to that last part because it, it's uh, it definitely rings very true that you know you're dealing with large organizations that on the one hand love the idea of something new and there's perhaps someone there who's a champion and excited about it, um, but then they're facing a much larger challenge of convincing uh, people to do things differently. Um, and yeah, I think it's a very common challenge we have of, um, introducing a new way of thinking and a new way of doing things and, and how do you generate momentum and energy, um, on, you know, on the client side, Eric, how do you, do you have some thoughts on that one? I know you're in that situation all the time. I think in fact, uh, before being, uh, um, about applying behavioral science, it is about change. And we have to fight against the statu quo bias and habits. And uh, uh, I think it is uh, so important. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, before Sandil Mulenatan, and I was very inspired by his book, uh, Scarcity, uh, which is uh, really about when you have so many crucial things in mind, uh, it's difficult for you to think about better decision. So here it is at the individual level. So I think at the individual level, there are your past habits, which are difficult to, to change. And it is the same at the organizational level with the statu quo bias. Um, and first, we have to think about how to fight this before maybe thinking about uh, how to apply behavioral science or to apply behavioral science to infuse behavioral science. Yeah, I, I would say in our situation, there are occasions where RFPs are coming to us, you know, so obviously there is a need and, and, and so forth, but it's probably more frequent that we're going to an organization that has a general vague interest <laughs> um, in behavioral science, uh, perhaps someone who read a few books and is interested and engaged but then again, helping them have an influence within their organization and finding the right intersection of, of a project and a budget <laughs> and internal champions. Yeah. Yeah. And we are often in a more challenging situation because uh, our mandate often comes from a foundation or a government contract who's a funder, but then we have to convince some other organization that we're actually implementing an intervention with. And they didn't necessarily come asking us. So we're usually reaching out to folks and saying, okay, Mr. College President or Provost, would you like to work on a dropout and reducing dropout? And we think we could help. Or uh, those who are approaching executives at different places. Um, yeah, we found it's always challenging. But if we align with the organization's top priorities, then the project at least gets done because we're not trying to make somebody add on something extra to your point, Eric, because they already have priorities. We'll try to just hijack those in a way and help them reach those same goals uh, with the behavioral science. So starting with uh, where they'd like to go and then finding the way behavioral science can help them get there as opposed to introducing other things on their agenda makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that at least um, gets the senior level leadership buy-in. And then in operationalizing any intervention, then you have a whole other layer of folks who have concerns. The IT people, the operations people, and everybody else who are actually implementing these things in the field. Uh, that I don't think we have a, a brilliant solution to, except you know just trying to make things as easy as possible. And convincing folks like, look, we're not rolling this out. This is just a small pilot. If you don't like it, if something breaks, don't worry. The cost is nothing. Like, we'll just not do this. We'll iterate and do something different. Yeah, I often uh, feel as though, uh, you know, sometimes we don't take our own advice or, or we can get so caught up in things that we forget some of the most important mantras of, you know, make it easy. <laughs> well, how can we make it easy for the organization because if we're demanding too much of their time, too much of their energy, too much of um, not just financial resources, but really it's usually people resources, um, it becomes problematic. Um, 
though, you know, with that said, I think it's a balancing act because we're often trying to teach and instill and inspire behavioral science thinking as well. And we can't do that if we just uh, look at a situation and hand them a report. <laughs> so uh, how do we engage them and get them excited, but not take so much of their time that it becomes a problem and a barrier? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so many times we may start with what's seemingly one project, but then it becomes two or three because in the process of uh, implementing it, we have to change the behavior of some customer service staff or clinic uh, staff, et cetera. Then that's another behavioral challenge to solve separately from the original one that we might have started with. So these these things always become very layered and iterative. And, and it again, goes back to that idea of building carefully and worrying about all these details. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, even... You know, we've talked about sometimes that could you separate the behavioral design from the project management and implementation? And we've hesitated to do that because in implementing these things, you end up having to modify to fit the operational constraints and that person doing the modification better understand the, uh, the behavioral science. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, for that reason, uh, we emphasize a lot of co-creation and co implementation and, and really try very hard to engage and leverage the resources from the client side because they know their business better than we're ever going to know it. <laughs> um, so some of the tools that Eric's developed, um, you know, like nudge labs and some of the, the other things we call behavioral sprints, they're really all about trying to tap into the knowledge that we think the organization has um, but even then, at the execution stage, it can be difficult to make sure you're still involved because <laughs> uh, sometimes they run with the ideas and then it can be hard for us to really make sure that they're being done the way we, we hope and, and, and also to measure, you know, in the back end. So I, I know we've been talking about challenges. I, I thought it might be nice as well, though, to hear a little more about some of the maybe the most fulfilling aspects of, of what you've been doing at Ideas 42. I don't know if that's around projects or, or more broadly than that, but um, are there things you'd like to share there? Yeah, we took it. Uh, yeah, there are challenges, but at the end of the day, we've implemented so many right, hundreds of successful projects over the years. The, the company has grown. Um, a lot more people are adopting behavioral science. We see a lot more people doing behavioral science and applying it I mean, like yourselves and uh, so many other firms. So this is great. I mean, just watching the field grow and build is, is very satisfying. And not just the academic side, but the applied sort of practitioner side. And then, of course, all of, uh, all of the social impact that's happening from doing this. Uh, that's been really, really satisfying. At, you know, I used to lose sleep in the early days because uh, I came from private sector and I used to worry that all of this behavioral science magic will get used for evil, right? People doing bad things and manipulating customers and so on. But so far, knock on wood, I haven't seen it used that way. And even even in the private sector, the stories I hear about, it's, it's usually, you know, something good. Uh, it's, it's helping people take up a, a beneficial product or you know, things like that. Piyush, you could uh, give our listeners some uh, advice about uh, infusing behavioral science. You started, but I think uh, as we are all practitioners, it could be uh, helpful to go deeper if, uh, if our objective is to uh, instill behavioral science within an organization. Uh, what are your key uh, advice from your uh, big experience? Yes. Um, you know, the the common model, as we all know, is is a kind of a SWAT team or nudge unit type model where uh, you create a team that uh, is specialized in this and they go around the organization doing this type of work. Uh, I think that's a good way to start and it has been successful for us and so many others. But ultimately, if they remain separate and they remain a skunk works on the side, it really doesn't infuse. 
in the organization doesn't change how executives and everyday managers are thinking about this. And there's always tension I hear in large organizations like, well, is there's a customer insights group and then there's a behavioral group and then there's marketing and there's uh, data science or machine learning and everybody's in a separate group and they're overlapping and often stepping on each other's toes or, or design thinking. Uh, so ultimately, what I think would be fantastic is for these teams to then go back into different functional areas, product areas, business units, and really start infusing this as a way of thinking. Because uh, I, I do believe that a behavioral perspective and behavioral insights add to marketing and add to UX design. They they add to the way you think about these things that already exist in these organizations. And that's the goal that I'd love to uh, ultimately get to, which is why we launched the Academy. And I know you, you all do a lot of uh, trainings as well, because we want to get at, at least a lot of people up to a certain basic fundamental level. Just two different thoughts there, I guess. One, um, yeah, we certainly hear this conversation or debate a little bit about the, you know, internal nudge unit within an organization versus the, you know, individuals within different functions. And it sounds like you're you're saying maybe it's uh, different stages of the journey where the nudge unit piece or the internal team uh, might make sense for a while, but ultimately evolve towards the, that other model. Yeah, and we've done projects uh, where our partners wanted to really adopt behavioral science and we wound up not setting up a nudge unit separately, but training a few key people within their marketing division or their product management division, because they're the ones really doing this day to day anyway. Uh, so sometimes we even skip the nudge unit phase and do it that way. And what about uh, human uh, res resource? Do you think human, uh, human resource is uh, also uh, an area where we could add a lot applying behavioral science? Hiring, uh, diversity, inclusion, uh, even safety at work or uh, uh, fighting against stereotypes. Yeah, definitely. So much to do there. Uh, and in some areas, I feel like we know a lot. There is a lot of science, like the safety. You know, so we've done projects with the Department of Labor here in, in the U.S., and some of those have involved safety, work safety, and of compliance there. On the diversity, inclusion, stereotypes, there's so much to do there, but I feel like we're still learning the insights. There's so much more uh, we could do. And even decision-making, executive decision-making, that I also feel like there are interesting things to try that we haven't tried around, you know, protocols for reducing, say, group decision-making biases and so on. Uh, there are so many things to do. Mm -hmm. I think Cass uh, has made some uh, uh, great work in this area of uh, better group decision and avoiding some of the specific uh, biases. I remember also a conversation we had some uh, months ago with uh, Faisal Naru uh, about the same topic of uh, infusing behavioral science within organization. And uh, I think he was very supportive of the idea rather than to have a specific nudge unit, more to high people in marketing, in uh, human resource, uh, uh, who have this knowledge of behavioral science. So it is a better way to infuse because they work every day in this uh, specific area to infuse behavioral science than having experts uh, within a unique behavioral science team. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I see a lot of people doing that, uh, but I see that they have a tendency to go look for a PhD uh, in psychology. You're like, oh, let's just hire a PhD scientist and that'll infuse behavioral science. But I think that, that actually is not always the best solution. And this is also the reason why I never ended up going for a PhD, even though that's how I landed at Ideas42 in the first place. Uh, 
uh, it was Antoinette Schwar who told me this. I was trying to decide whether to go or not. She said that, look, if you go for a PhD, we will reprogram your brain. We will teach you to think differently than you do now, and you'll become less able to do the applied work that you do now. Because uh, science is so much about generating knowledge. It's a different way of thinking. And it's not so much about applying it. Then in psychology, you also get very focused in a particular area, whereas the three of us at our teams are applying so many different parts uh, of the psychology. So we do need, um, think, people who are trained differently for these roles, uh, not not PhDs, but people who are trained to apply this work. Right? It's like engineering is to pure science. So, you know, you wouldn't hire a physicist to build uh, consumer electronics. Right? You would hire an electrical engineer or a computer scientist. Yeah, I think the, the best would be uh, to have um, in a business school, for example, when you uh, uh, try to... Um, um, become specialized in human resource, let's say, to have behavioral science course and lessons and uh, to understand the basic learning at that moment. So you are an expert in HR, in marketing and so on, but you have understood the basics, uh, the fundamentals of behavioral science. So you apply it as an expert in your uh, area. Yeah, I, I think you know, when I try to think about our philosophy, it is some, it echoes some of what you said, where I think we're often trying to bring in people with real detailed expertise or, and, or passion in a given area. Um, you know, whether that's financial services or it's diversity and inclusion or it's education and teach training. Um, and then they have the behavioral science layer on top of that, but it's really being, you know, it's the detailed knowledge or passion that, that I think is really allowing them to, um, to make a difference because they, they truly understand an area or a topic um, very well. And then they're thinking about how to apply behavioral science in that world. And uh, I'm not sure it's mutually exclusive to a PhD, <laughs> um, but it doesn't, it's not dependent on it by any means. I was curious a little bit more about training because um, one thing that we see, and, and I guess this is the case with a lot of training and teaching is that, you know, it's very, people are intuitively interested and excited. Um, you know, behavioral science resonates. It makes sense to them. So it's not difficult to get them in the room, so to speak. And it's not difficult, I think, to get them really excited Um you know, whether it's a day or, or a half a day of, of, of learning and seeing examples. But as with almost any training, um, you know, they can run out and then nothing happens, uh, you know, the next week. So I was curious what you've been doing to try to help um, make it stick, so to speak, or, or to help folks uh, really start to act on what they learn when they come to an academy course or something else. Yeah, we... we... Uh, the academy courses, we only have them for eight eight hours or so, right? Uh, so we we try to have people reflect during the course as they're learning the psychology on problems that they're facing either in personal life or in their work life. And hopefully that at least creates a seed in their mind. So by the time they leave the course, they've thought about one of their projects in a different way. And that might create, you know, some opportunity. Uh, but I think what's really uh, needed, and we haven't launched this yet, I mean, COVID definitely got in the way of that, is some more experiential learning, where while we're teaching the psychology, people are applying it to an actual project that we're then coaching them on. Right? So something that's more like a, a fellowship or most apprenticeship type program. And this is how so many of these skills-based certifications work, like Six Sigma, where you only get that green belt or black belt once you've completed a certain type of a certain number of projects. And like, that's ultimately what we want to do, I think, in behavioral science. Because I, we realized early on with the, the first few years of Ideas42 that there are a lot of skills that you need in addition to the knowledge of behavioral science. And those skills are in how you 
apply the science, but also things like just how do you persuade people to try something new? How do you manage a project? How do you do a complex uh, experiment? How do you handle implementation and experimental design? And there are all these other things around the behavioral science you need to know. And the best way to learn those is think experientially. Let's speak about COVID, which is uh, one quite big uh, topic. Uh, it's especially relevant to us because at the BV Energy Need, we have been working with the French government from the very beginning of the crisis to nudge citizens to adopt uh, the new relevant behaviors. And it is a crisis which would have been solved thanks to uh, new behaviors and the respect and the adoption and now about uh, vaccination which is also a, a, a new um, a new behavior so uh, we would love to have your perspective about behavioral science and uh, the covid crisis and how we could help uh, and what do you think about this yeah it's uh, so much uh, so much behavioral work to do but you know uh, in the early days of the crisis i would just watch from my window because i lived on a busy corner you know the mask wearing behaviors of catching on in new york city and you could actually see that there was a critical mass like once you saw say you know about 20 30 of people walking down the street wearing masks after that it just went so quickly and you could see social norms in, in action over time that was that was fantastic in those days we um You know, there was no time to do experiments, right? So we just, uh, we put out the best advice that we could uh, publicly. And we you know, for example, we wrote about how for social distancing, you have to actually think about physical environment design differently. And how do you physically change the feel and flow of things like now what's completely common to us, we don't even notice it, all of these markings of what six feet are, At that time, that wasn't happening. That was one of the things we put out that well, we need to mark things. Like maybe we need to reorganize grocery stores because if there was crowding around the bread aisle because everyone was buying bread and there was a shortage in March and April, at least in New York, why not put three different displays spread out around the store of bread and things like that? Uh, now we've uh, shifted gears to working on a vaccine, of course, and take up. The, of the vaccine and deliveries. We're partnering with Katie Milkman and others at Penn on a project on that. We're uh, advising various uh, health systems and pharma companies and other types of entities involved in this space to just, uh, you know, solve problems as quickly as we can. And I think the challenge here for all of us uh, in COVID is we're all used to this very rigorous way of doing behavioral science and applying it because it's innovation we're tinkering we're running experiments we're refining them and then we're rolling things out we don't have the luxury of doing that now so it's uh it, it's i'm finding that it's a shift for us uh, in how we do the work where we have to go out on a limb and give somebody advice to the best of our knowledge because they need to implement this tomorrow Uh, it's, it's all moving very quickly and it's more informal in, in many ways. And sometimes we don't have the measurement of, you know, where we write about uh, the idea that we gave someone. So that part is, is a challenge and different, but yeah, there's so much going on. Uh, I do think that with uh, vaccine hesitancy, you know, it's possible that the scarcity principle will help us here, actually, because it's hard to get, a vaccine appointment I mean is that actually countering uh, some of the hesitancy for people you know because certainly so far we're seeing that all the vaccines that are available are getting taken up here and uh, what are your uh, key ideas to accelerate vaccination uh, Uh, meaning to encourage people to accept uh, vaccination and maybe also uh, to uh, speak about uh, vaccination in a way which encourages their network also to, to be vaccinated. 
Yeah, and this is uh, just a disclaimer that this is just my personal opinion. I, I'm not directly uh, working on the project. Some of my colleagues have done a lot more thinking on this. But uh, some of the thoughts I have is that right now, I, I feel like the real barrier is just getting an appointment. And there's so much hassle and complexity, at least in the United States, in most places, every state and city has a different policy on who's eligible. Everybody has a different place you go for getting an appointment. And sometimes you have to go to 10 different websites to search for an appointment. So we've had you know, uh, helpful technologists uh, build things like TurboVax that just lets you find a vac vaccine appointment. So we need to make the process easier. So at least the people who want to get a vaccine can easily get a vaccine because we then need those people to be the messengers and the source of social norms and social proof for everybody else who might be on the fence and hesitating. Right. So that I think is critical. The other is um, the natural tendency to talk about vivid things more. So if you have horrible side effects, you're going to talk about it. But if you took the vaccine and nothing happened to you, you're probably not going to talk about it that much. You may not even mention that you got the vaccine. Right? But if you were sick for two days, everyone's going to know about it. So how do, we, how do we counter that? And how do we talk about the millions of people who've taken the vaccine and have had no side effects whatsoever? So my mom just took the first dose of AstraZeneca a couple of days ago in India and had no symptoms. She doesn't even have a sore arm, like nothing. Um, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it almost makes me think um, that some form of salience would have a lot of power. You know, even if you think of the parallel to, to voting and the little I voted buttons and stickers, you know, uh, just a, a quick way to to for people to see that more around them have gotten it without uh, major problems and so forth. Cause you're right. I, I, you know, when nothing happens, people aren't likely to talk about it. <laughs> it's the bad things that they're more likely to share. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm glad that uh, media outlets are reporting and tracking you know, the percent of people who've already been vaccinated one dose and two doses. And I'd, I'd also love to see that your know, 99.8% of those had no side effects that were serious. And no complications. That would be a great statistic. Whatever that number is, it would be great to see. Uh, we're starting to reach towards the end of our time, and, and I wanted to make sure we had a little while to talk about the future of behavioral science, because uh, I know that's an area you're very passionate about. You mentioned before um, how good you feel about where things have, have gone over the past 10 years. Um, so I'd just love to hear a little more of your thoughts about um what's been accomplished, um, maybe some of the challenges ahead um, and some of the opportunities ahead where you see things going? Yeah, I, I think uh, we're really at a moment in the field where, uh, you know, there's so much opportunity and we do need to make a conscious shift, though. So as because we grew out of academia, I feel like in the early years, the the metric of success was how many experiments did you run? Right? Or did you run an experiment? And then the secondary question was, well, what happened? What did it mean? Did you actually have impact? And we, we now need to measure our success based on impact, I think. Are we actually making change in the world? And that means we may not always get to run an experiment or we may use other techniques rather than a perfect sort of randomized control trial. Uh, I'm really interested in seeing how we apply behavioral science in product design, in systems design in the first place, rather than going and adding on behavioral science to something that already exists to optimize it a little bit. Right? So how do we reinvent the world rather than simply optimize perhaps a mediocrely designed world that you know, could use some improvement? And, and how we how we do that, uh, I think, is still emerging. Uh, I've been learning as much as I can myself about design and systems design, and I'm collaborating with experts in those fields to try out their methodologies combined with the behavioral science knowledge base and perspectives. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of interesting potential 
I'm finding. So, you know, in, in mapping a system, there are always human actors in the system that are interacting with various things. They might be interacting with information, with institutions, with other people. And behavioral science has so much to add on precisely how those interactions might happen and what what might change those interactions or be barriers or channels. Uh, so I think we can add a lot to strategy and systems design and some of this more upstream thinking um, that goes on and get involved at that stage. Uh, so I'm most excited about the potential for that. And really integrating these different uh, innovation disciplines. Yeah, I was going to say um, that theme you mentioned uh, at the beginning about uh, reinventing or designing things better, essentially, as opposed to fixing or optimizing is definitely one that we've we've heard as a somewhat consistent theme from from different people leading the field. And, you know, I suspect it may be tied to that conversation we had earlier about instilling and integrating, you know, so it's not project A, project B which is often driven by a problem or something that's not working as opposed to having someone on a team that when they do develop that new service or product, it's built into that thinking, you know, whether it's conscious or, or subconscious. Yeah. It has to be infused in the R and D step you know, rather than after the fact. And that means that we need more sustained commitment and funding. Now, so much of this work uh, is funded on a short project basis. And, and to some extent, we've sold that. We've sold these things as a quick, cheap fix. Right? And uh, that is now coming back to, to bite us because people say, oh, but you said this was fast. Now you're saying you want a five-year innovation invention process? <laughs> so there is a bit of a mind set change we have to make uh, uh, you know reversal also in, in in our buyers minds about how this could add in other ways one other area that, that interests me and i'd love to hear your perspective because you're perhaps coming at it from a slightly different angle is um public private partnerships to drive innovation and, and address some real core problems or challenges and are you seeing a good deal of that tied to behavioral science or, or is it much more siloed where you're seeing NGOs or governments and not so much private sector? Uh, I, I don't have as much visibility into private sector. I think you both are, are more expert in that than I am. And that's also perhaps because in private sector, things are generally more proprietary and you know, won't get published. But in the COVID vaccine work, uh, Right? We're partnering with pharma companies and pharmacy chains, but also government health systems. And everybody's trying to solve this together. Uh, and it's, it's that classic, uh, you know, how do you solve uh, in-group, out-group problems as you have some common problem that, that all the groups want to solve. So COVID in that sense has given us this boost of uh, joining together and solving things. And I'd love to see more of that because I, I think, uh, as we know, it, the context matters a lot and every aspect of the context matters, but it's not controlled by just NGOs or just governments or just private sector. I mean, everybody has a part to play. Uh, I would like just to ask uh, a question to Piyush uh, regarding the future of behavioral science and if you have any perspective regarding behavioral science and artificial intelligence and big data, because some of us think it could be something very uh, important with uh, a lot of challenges, but also uh, big opportunities. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, uh Many of my colleagues, uh, including Sandal, uh, have been doing a lot of work on the intersection of these two for the last several years, and we have a, many projects on it. So I'm I'm not an expert. This is going to be my sort of naive, you know, beginner's take on on the machine learning interactions. But the the probably the most intuitive application is that right now all our behavioral interventions are one size fits all, but with machine learning we can target them we can more quickly figure out you know, which type of interventions work for which uh, subgroups of 
of people. The more data we have, the more sample sizes we have, the more we can do that type of work. Um, there's also the adoption of machine learning algorithms. So in so many cases, the machine learning algorithm is, uh, is a support to an expert decision maker. Right? So one of the projects uh, we've done is helping you know, judges adopt a machine learning output that helps them decide whether to set bail for somebody or not set bail. Right, so what is the probability that this person will not show up to court or the probability that they'll commit another crime if, if they're released? And algorithms do very well at predicting that. But then there are, of course, also expert uh, judgment effects. But lots of behavioral issues come up there, as you can imagine. Like, oh, you know, maybe I habitually do my decision-making in a certain way, or maybe my identity gets attacked because I'm an expert. Why should I rely on this algorithm? And it's a difficult decision on when to override the algorithm and when not to, and that has lots of behavioral challenges. So I think that that's where these things come together as well. Uh, there's consumer adoption of uh, of artificial intelligence. So will people ever be comfortable in a self-driving car? What are all the behavioral issues around that? And how do you design for that? So yeah, there are I think, lots of interesting things to work on. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Piyush, uh, again for joining us uh, today. Is there anything you would like to leave our listener with? Perhaps... Uh, where can they find uh, out more about IDs42 uh, and its work? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so we have a lot of information on our website. It's just www.ideas42.org. Um, follow us on Twitter. It's just at Ideas42. Um, those are probably the best sources. We also uh, partner with you all and many others on uh, the blog Behavioral Scientists. That's a great source. And then similarly, another sort of consortium resource, it's called bhub.org, B-H-U-B.org, where we put up uh, some simple tools for practitioners to use behavioral science quickly. We also put up you no know, behavioral interventions that have worked in multiple places. So a practitioner can kind of read about them there and, and um, try to adapt and adopt them. Thanks a lot, Piyush. It was really a great conversation and uh, an honor and a pleasure for us to welcome you in this uh, episode. Uh, likewise, I really enjoyed the conversation also, especially picking your brains on uh, you know, organizational adaption. That was, that was great. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.